millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello, I'm Peter Hart and I'm with everybody's favourite. Who am I with? Who am I with? I don't know from that description, but you're with me, Gary Bain. Who else is here? Fred. Fred! Has he uh, has he been well recently, Fred? <laughs> no, no, I um, I've got the windows and the doors open this morning, Pete. <laughs> Is that to avoid COVID or some other poisonous? It's to avoid Fred. <laughs> He's been uh, active this morning, has he? Oh, just a bit. I just noticed your eyes are watering. <laughs> yeah, we're back on Zoom. We're all in lockdown, uh, and uh, for us, it's just tier you... four. Oh, yeah. Sorry, it's completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, what are we doing today, Gary? Give us a clue as to what we're doing. Well, this is the second part, Pete, of the South Nazis fighting in Northwest Europe. We we left them a few days ago, uh, I think perched on the the edge of the Scheldt, which I couldn't say, and I've been practising. Oh, that's very good. It's good. People say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Fred's learned a few. Right. So that's where we are. So where they are, they're they're uh, they're following up the north. Uh, they're 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 attached to the Canadians still. Uh, the the overall background, and you can listen to the, the last one if you want to know the real background. But the the Germans are desperate to deny Antwerp as a port uh, to 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 the Germans to to the Allies. To the Allies. That'll teach, that'll teach me. <laughs> Uh, to concentrate, and uh, they've cleared the Allies have cleared the south bank of the Scheldt, but they the Germans still have a, a complete grip on Walcheren and South Beveland that form the north bank. Now, I have to be honest with you, before I did this, I had no idea about any of those places, but apparently, I'm not even sure you said it right. Is it Beveland or Beveland? Beveland, you idiot. That means it's almost certainly prevalent. <laughs> whenever I'm confident, I'm wrong. I know we fought in Walcheren in about, was it 1804? Wasn't that the grand old Duke of York thing? Anyway, we're back. It's, it's as if the British fought in many different places, many different times. It's as if we were an aggressive and unpleasant imperial power at times. Obviously not now. Not now. Not, no, not, no. Not the no. South Nazis, ours. No, they're lovely. 
so what's the plan? What's the plan, Gary? Tell me what the plan is. You tell me. You tell me. Tell me. Well, it was it was a bold plan, Pete. It was uh, the first task was to take South Beveland, 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 and uh, the second Canadian division would uh, simultaneously launch a, a, a desperate attack, pushing westwards onto the island, uh, which I presume is Valtuuren, uh, along the two mile wide narrow causeway, and a hundred and fifty sixth brigade of the fifty second Lowland Division, fine body of men accompanied by a squadron of the Staffordshire Yeomanry in amphibious uh, Sherman tanks, the DD Sherman tank, I believe, uh, would launch a seaborne landing from the southeast corner of the island. So really, really complicated uh, and, and uh, a daring plan. The island's South Beaverland, though. I, I oh, your, is it? <laughs> yeah, see your geographical... You're oh, yeah, they're like, both islands. <laughs> they're both islands. And neither of them are really islands in some ways, are they, also? So that's what's confusing for, for, for any of us. So, 23rd of October, 1944, the whole of 9th Agra. It is 9th Agra. Those of you who remember the first podcast will know that Pete was not sure. I wasn't. <laughs> they concentrate on the headland, basically directly opposite South Beveland. Uh, and the South Dutch Cesars, uh, Gary, tell me where the South Dutch Cesars are. Uh, they're clustered around the village of uh, Groenendijk, or Groenendijk, I think it's probably pronounced. Oh, you did that a lot better than I was expecting. It's a very complicated looking word. The weather was very much like you, actually, Pete. Well, cold, dark and miserable. <laughs> yeah, it was cold, dank, cold, miserable weather and uh, uh, it marked the imminent onset of winter. And our good friend signaller Ronald Paisley of 426 Battery says, there were the usual discomforts, repairing line to guns at night in pitch darkness, mud and rain, doing odd jobs with the aid of a broken hurricane lamp, dismal meals with numb hands and the usual anticipation of enemy shelling, which, like the sword of Damocles, was always suspended over our heads. However, most of us kept fairly cheerful and good-humoured and often laughed at our own misfortunes. Ha, 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 a British trait. Now, I've noticed that they don't do that ever. No, what? I moan. <laughs> my experience is we moan. <laughs> the moaning, absolutely. And we laugh at other people's misfortunes, not our own. And this is relevant to what's going to happen later when there's a similar thing about good fortune. Uh, so uh, let's just set that there. The attack goes in 5.45 on the 26th of uh, October. Uh, and, to, to I mean, the South Dots aren't going. They're staying at, uh, oh, God, that village. Um, I caught myself there. Grunendike. Grunendike. And uh, the, but they send forward forward observation officers who are going to be in touch by radio. And what they are, they go with the infantry and the tanks. And their role is to send back a uh, uh, call for artillery support from the the five point five inch guns uh, and to to, to li- liaise with the, the 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 officers of the infantry and the tanks. Four two five battery sent uh, uh, the forward observation officers to the fifty second Lowland Division. Uh, that's uh, Major James Martin would be one. He's the uh, the major in charge of four two five battery, and the others Captain David Elliot, uh, the officer. Uh, 
Now, the, 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 they also sent a forward observation officer with the Staffordshire Yeomanry, and that would be Lieutenant Ian Sinclair, and he'd be in a DD camp. I thought you'd make a joke about double D tanks, uh, but then might. <laughs> You're no, so much more mature as than you, you mentioned. Are. As you mentioned this morning, I'm quite sophisticated. Yeah, I did mention you were sophisticated. Um, now, uh, so who? Now, I'm going to be David Elliott. So, so you set the scene for me because I've got to have the, the the funny thing about this podcast is, in a way, this is just most of the podcast is the the account of two officers of this of this uh, of this operation. They're both pretty exciting, and Gary's doing one, and I'm doing the other. Uh, set the scene for so so uh, so. What am I doing, Gary? Well, as, as David Elliott, Captain David Elliott. Well, David Elliott was assigned to the 6th Cameronian Highlanders as they crossed the shelf. Fine body of men. Fine body of men. And they were in Buffalo Assault Craft. Uh, he'd been allotted a, a, an M29 Weasel, which was a small tracked vehicle, which was capable of dealing with rough ground, uh, but it had very limited amphibious capacity, which, um, given what they're doing, uh, it might have been a bit of an issue, but it just about fitted inside one of the buffalo troop carrying amphibious craft. So it was inside one of the buffaloes? It was inside one of the buffaloes. That's probably a good thing. It was not designed for... <laughs> it would never have got across. No. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, Elliot, he took the precaution of taking with him a beer bottle which was full of rum. Now, you're going to be uh, David Elliot throughout. So what does Captain David Elliot 425 battery tell us, Pete? Come on, well, what's he tell us? Well, for a start, I'm not doing any funny access. In fact, there won't be any funny access today because, unfortunately, all these stories have bits in them that are not funny. So I'm just going to read it straight. Pete, Here we go. Your, your own accent is quite funny. <laughs> Thank you for undermining me just before I start this mass. Now, I want you to picture David Elliott. He was about six foot six tall. Uh, he was the tallest man in the British Army, they reckoned, uh, at, at some point. Um, uh, he's a fantastic uh, chap. Anyway, here we go. There was just room for Lance Bombardier, Shepard and my signaller to stand with me by one side of the, the, the weasel and peer out at the rapidly approaching sea, which appeared wet and cold and horribly choppy in the morning mist. With a sudden lurch, which threw us together, <laughs> we were in the water and floating. That's the, so that, that's the uh, of course, that's the buffalo that's floating. <laughs> the, chur the tracks churned madly and we started to follow the bobbing rear lights in front. I felt that our successful launching called for a nip of rum and, pa <laughs> and passed the bottle round. We were soon out of sight of land and everything was quiet except for the low pop-popping of our engines and the slap of small waves against the side of our craft. I find it amusing that, you know, any excuse to have a sip of the rum. <laughs> now... As the barrage opened up, the, the skyline behind them was lit up with gun flashes and they had lost their way and, and a green light ahead of them told them that they were approaching the wrong beach. And then the Germans opened up. Damn Germans. And Captain David Elliott goes on to say... The noise of the shells screaming overhead was very frightening and the sudden feeling of being lost and absolutely alone was most unnerving. I passed the rum bottle around again had stood up front next to the driver. Dawn was coming fast, and there, looming out of the mist, was the sea wall. As suddenly as it had started, the barrage stopped, and I realised that the assault troops would be going ashore without us. Before I could encourage the marine to make greater speed, a machine gun opened up on us from the shore. 
Fortunately, the gunner's aim was faulty at first, and we all dropped to the bottom of our craft to watch the tracer bullets passing overhead. It was too good to last. The semi-darkness was lit by a flare, and the bullets began to clat on the small part of the armour-plated side of the buffalo, which was above the waterline. We were safe enough lying in the bottom. The rum bottle went round again, <laughs> and this time was quickly finished. <laughs> During these few minutes, the buffalo had ploughed its way on south, and as the flare dropped into the south, hmm, and as the flare dropped into the sea and went out, the machine gun stopped firing. Now, he's really relieved. He spots the amber light. Now, that's the light that marks his beach, not the green light. That's somebody, that's the, the 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 essential. That's why he'd known it was wrong. And so he goes on. As we approach the shore, there was an explosion and an amphibious vehicle of some sort burst into flames on top of the sea wall. From the crack, it sounded as though we were up against 88mm guns. Always 88mm. <laughs> the garish light of the brew-up helped our approach run. But <laughs> the British Army, somebody else's misfortune. <laughs> but to my consternation, I could see a line of wooden stakes sticking out of the water at the foot of the seawall. Nobody had warned us of this. <laughs> Sorry. The Marines' instructions had been to take us over the wall before unloading, but he took one look <laughs> at the height of the barrier and at the water lapping the bottom of the stakes and lowered his ramp. Crikey. <laughs> he said words to the effect that he was buggered if he was going over the top. <laughs> All four of us were now standing in water up to our knees, wrestling with the stakes. Fortunately, it did not take much work to, for them to, to work them loose from the mud, although there's no doubt they would have wrecked the tracks of our small weasel had we tried to drive over them. So what's happening is the, the main boat stopped yeah. the buffalo, and the weasel's now coming out, but it can't get over these or even push aside these, these uh, stakes. Uh, Shepard now climbed into his cramped driving seat, let off the brakes, and our vehicle rolled out of the buffalo into the muddy surf. Do you think he'd given Shepard, the driver, some of that rum? I think so. <laughs> Have another swig, lad. Uh, now, there's still a, the seawall. They've got past the stakes, but there's still the seawall towering above them. And Elliot says this. I told Shepard he was to drive our vehicle over the wall as fast as he could and that in order to decrease the chance of casualties, the signaller and I would crawl over the top, not in. <laughs> Imagine my surprise <laughs> when I saw as much water in front of us as we'd left in the shelf behind us. The Germans have flooded all the land, the only dry parts being the road and verges running inland. Before I could go back and warn him, Shepard was over the top. <laughs> I like this. For a moment, the vehicle hovered on the brow. You've got to imagine it. I'll tip on the wall. And then seemingly out of control, it crashed down 20 feet onto the perimeter road, which ran inside the seawall, bounced once and skidded off into the flooded area with a great splash and floated. Oh, it's just as well. Lance Bombardier Shepard was soon in control again and brought the weasel back up onto the road, and the signaller and I climbed in. <laughs> Sorry, for some reason, I really like Elliot. Well, none of that is obviously attributable to a whole beer bottle full of rum, is it? <laughs> no, no, none of that has anything to do now, they've, they've, well, so, so what's happening? Let's set the scene for me. What, what, what's happening with well, these they've, lads? Now they've completely lost touch with the Cameronians and uh, they were meant to be providing the fire support, don't forget. So that's so, serious. That, that's that's not very good. serious. 
So Elliot decides to move inland along the road and he passes a, a wreck. Uh, wrecked German vehicles that marked the passage of the Scots, so he knew you, he was going the right way. Are you saying the Scots have been destroying German vehicles? Well, that was their job, to be fair. And uh, eventually, he locates the battalion headquarters. Now, this is what he says there. They get to the battalion headquarters, and Elliot says, uh, let's put the tin hat on it, a tin-hatted Scotsman waved us down and told us Battalion HQ was round the next bend and that the CO was inquiring for us. I bet he was. Yeah. <laughs> I bet... Anyone I was... seen that? <laughs> the foo. <laughs> I bet he called it. I bet, well, two of the letters would be right. <laughs> I found the colonel, his adjutant, sitting on the, a grassy bank, eating a sandwich of bully beef and dry biscuit. Oh, yummy, yum, yum. He immediately asked if I was ready to engage a, a, a target. No questions as to where we'd been or any recriminations at all. Sometimes you don't entirely believe these stories, which was a relief. I told Bombardier Shepherd to contact the regiment and gave the orders, take post, whilst I obtained particulars of the target. It transpired that the Germans had at least two 88s in front of us and that they were giving each other covering fire as they retreated inland. So one's falling back and the other uh, covering, and then just going back in steps. At the moment, they were thought to be in some farm buildings about half a mile ahead, which was also defended by machine guns. Our maps were accurate, and we were able to identify the buildings and pass the map reference to the guns. In an impressively short time, I had a gun ready and was able to range onto the target and then give five rounds gunfire. Oh, so, 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 yeah, you take up the story then. Well, it, 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 more targets are identified and they, and they engage with them. And as they begin to carry out their allotted role, the colonel asked Elliot if he could supply an artillery support for an attack on the village. Now, Elliot, in response, calls up the mass fire of the whole 9th Agra. So, you know, a massive amount of support to provide a creeping barrage moving slowly forwards in front of them. And don't forget, the Canadians always wanted very close support, so they were used to providing this type of very close support to infantry. Now, Elliot says this, I gave the order, fire, from the safety of the roadside bank. And with my head just over the edge of the road, I watched these brave Scotsmen advance across the field towards the smoke of our bursting shells. Their noise was indescribable. Every half minute, the barrage lifted 50 yards towards the village. And as men vanished into the smoke by the hedges, I realised the predicament of those men who had to keep us close to our bursting cells, shells so as to reach the enemy before they had chance to recover. And at the same time, if they got too close, there was a very real danger of being hit by a fragment of our own shells. I am very thankful to be able to say that the Cameronians reached the village almost unopposed. The enemy had done another withdrawal. So that's a success, isn't it? That really yeah. is a success. Yeah. Um, and as I say, they were used to providing that sort of uh, support to the Canadians. So providing it to the Scottish, you know, uh, they avoided the temptation to get it wrong. <laughs> now at night, yeah. You know, so that well, enough of what he does. At night, he makes his way back to the brigade headquarters, uh, 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 and uh, he says this, uh, and this is uh, this this is where it starts to get sad. I think uh, a cheerful voice called me out of the darkness. It was Lance Bombardier Ward, our battery commander's very experienced signaller. James Martin had posted him outside to meet us. Jimmy Ward told Shepard where to take the weasel and how to find the cookhouse and then said he'd take me to the battery commander. I walked by the side of this man in the pitch black. 
The next thing I knew, there was a flash and an explosion, and I was blown off the road into the ditch at the side. My head hurt, but otherwise I seemed to be all in one piece. And so I pulled myself back onto the road, on my stomach, feeling sure somebody would come hurrying to see what had happened, and the nightmare would soon be over. But not a sound of anybody. I called the bombardier's name, but still silence. And then I reached him, lying in the middle of the road. I could not feel any sign of life, and when my hand reached the back of his head, my fingers could tell that Jimmy Ward was indeed dead. Uh, I, I think we can imagine what that means. I got to my feet covered in mud and blood. The explosion had been a mortar shell which had passed close by my head before exploding on the road on the other side of my companion, and his body had shielded me by taking the full blast. My luck had not run out after all. Well, whoever Jimmy Ward said. Well, I think you've got a point to make here about the the typical soldier. Yeah, I mean, it, David Elliott has come from the ranks, hasn't he? He's been promoted from the ranks, and um, uh, you made the point earlier that um, somebody else's misfortune, but he's thinking about his own good luck. Um, it's inevitable, isn't it? All he gets, you know, is a little cut on his cheek from a flying stone. It's amazing, really. That, um, and poor old Jimmy Ward. Uh, they were, oh, well. Anyway, now now we're going to turn to your story, and you're going to be Captain Ian Sinclair. Now, he was incredibly good-looking. Uh, his troop was known as Glamour Troop. Um, he was thin, pencil-thin, even when I saw him as a. So, basically, gym. I'm typecast. You are typecast. It's it, 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 gorgeous and pencil-thin. And uh, now, you remember, he was uh, accompanying the Sherman tanks, the DD Now, these are tanks with a big canvas screen so that they floated. Only just. Mm. (laughs) And some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. Well, at D-Day, when they were caught in bad weather. Uh, And they're going across the Scheldt. Now, just to make this worse for Ian Sinclair, he's a really, really bad sailor. And he he preferred to stay on dry land. And you're going to take up the story now. Captain Ian Sinclair, 426 Battery. I was shattered to find out that I was going in one of these wretched Sherman DD tanks with the Staffordshires. We were using the tank radio back to brigade who were in touch with the gun positions, relaying targets. Remembering my propensity for being seasick, that alone was enough to make me feel that I'd rather be anywhere else. It was quite an experience when you knew you were no longer on dry land, driving into the sea. Bearing in mind, these are tanks. (laughs) Standing on the outside of the tank and you've got canvas wall all around. It propelled itself very, very slowly towards the enemy. It wasn't very far, two to three thousand yards. I wasn't seasick on this occasion. That would seem to take forever, I would imagine, because uh, I know it's only a, a mile or so, two, a couple of miles at most, but it, it, it takes a long, long time. Uh, and and how, how, did, how, did, how did Sinclair feel? Uh, well, he, he's feeling incredibly vulnerable, and he goes on to say, anybody seeing you would have no trouble picking you off, but we've got everybody's heads down with all the firing we've been doing from the mainland. Before we got on shore, we were in all sorts of trouble. Considerable gunfire against the attacking force, more than anybody had appreciated. My tank did not get ashore. It was hitting the tracks at water level. The shell didn't come inside the canvas wall. 
The tank was immobilised and we were on the sea bottom, beached about a hundred yards off. Everybody except me bailed out. They could just walk holding their equipment and rifles up before they got onto the beach. Now, Sinclair's got no alternative. He's He's got to stay where he was. He's Why? with the Why? radio. Why? He's got oh. the radio. So he says, I was in touch by radio with the brigade, having to tell them what had happened. You could see over the top of the canvas screen, stood on the turret with a microphone down to the radio inside the tank, relaying information. I was also in touch with the people who had landed, found by a map reference where they needed help and then able to tell brigade where our gunfire was needed. They decided which guns were going to fire. It might not have been my guns at all. I became a vital link for infantrymen, tankmen and other gunners who had managed to get ashore. I was also very frightened. I didn't think I was ever going to get out. I spent a day and a whole night there. Now, when you, so he's standing. Now think of how high up he is, how vulnerable he is, because those Shermans are, are tall things at the best of times. Uh, so he's very vulnerable, stood up on the back of the turret. Uh, uh, so what? What uh, is it a, a tideless thing, the shelter? It's, no. It's, it's... no. So that night, the tide comes in. and ah! you know, you, It's pretty easy to appreciate the horror of his situation he's under heavy fire he's all alone he's a ground in a tank with only the turret poking above the waves and now the tide's coming in so captain sinclair says that was very frightening i thought i might be swamped the thing didn't float it was bogged down i got inside the tank pulled the lid down and told them what the situation was water was coming in when the tide went out again I went back outside and was able to get out. Other forward observation officers had come across and had got onto the island. Martin and uh, Elliot. Sinclair gets the military cross for that, and I, I think it's a well-earned military cross, because he could have just abandoned his post. I mean, it wasn't a tenable position he was in, was it? No, not at all. And and, and he didn't leave until it, it, he could leave the radio because others were there, so thoroughly deserved. So two for two days, the South Nottasars are 5.5-inch guns, the 9th Agra are supporting the 51st Division and the 2nd Canadian Division. And there's bitter fighting on South Beveland, but for, for, for now on, we'll, we'll leave this story, because in a sense, they're just firing now. Uh, and, and then the 9th Agra is required to support the, uh, the, the assault on Walcheren Island. That's the, the island next to it. Um, they move round the southern bank of the Scheldt to take up uh, gun positions, well, it's beneath the, it's near, near the seawall at Breskins. And on the 1st of November, they helped in the assault by the 51st Division and, and the, the commandos. But we're, we're going to glide past this. We can't do everything, can we? Uh, and and Walcheren falls on the 4th of November. And this means, what does this mean, Gary? Tell, tell me, tell me. I'm, I, I need to know what it means. Well, it basically means that the, the, the pathway into Antwerp's now free. And once they clear the German minefields blocking the Scheldt were cleared, uh, the logistical situation would be transformed in an instant. So they wouldn't have to, they wouldn't have their, their lines, of, well, still would, but their lines of communication wouldn't be entirely dependent on all the way back to Aramanche. No. Now, 7th of November, the, the South Otsasars move into the eastern Netherlands. Um, uh, what were driving conditions like, would you imagine? Well, I would imagine they're pretty good. No, they're, they're, they're awful, aren't they? There's a combination of uh, unmetalled roads, deep dikes lurking for the unwary and traffic jams from the press of military traffic to the front. Um, 
They eventually took up their firing positions three miles south of the town of Wyatt. Now, 13th of November, the whole of 9th Agra, there's a huge artillery barrage. And I, I want to make it clear that people go on and on about tanks and uh, aircraft, but the massed fire of the Royal Artillery is crucial in 1944-45 to destroy the German ability uh, to resist. It's not the only reason. Of course, things like tanks, the infantry and the uh, and the Air Force are important, but the, the, the destructive capacity of massed artillery cannot be underestimated. What Would about you the Navy? Yep, the Navy, all right, Naval support fire, but I'm not sure they can reach that far inland. What have the Romans ever done for us? Oh, God, so much. Yeah. yeah now, yeah. don't forget so, the Navy, Pete. Senior service. They are my favourites. Now, uh, so 13th of November, they've amassed an artillery barrage um, for the, uh, what is it, 12th Corps, is it 12th? Uh, assault across the Canal du Nord and River Meuse, uh, heading towards Rouen. No point in looking on the map, just just take it for red. And uh, so it's very different from earlier in the war. What, what are the rear areas like by this time? Well, they're really, really crowded you could say overcrowded with guns and and it's difficult to find any feasible unoccupied gun positions so it's all very well saying you know set your guns up but where where are you going to do this now uh, 107th uh, the 107th medium uh, move into they're just a couple of miles short of the Meurs and they're in a dangerous salient and and they get knights they get uh, shell and mortar fire coming down on them uh, but when it comes to it, when it comes to it, why, why can't the German gunners continue to do that? Why, why do they lose the artillery duel? Why? Why, Gary? Well, they're massively outnumbered. You know, the concentration into the Agras gives the Allies a massive advantage. So the infantry push forward and eventually the West Bank of the Meuse is cleared. Uh, the South Otisars on 3rd of December move into the town of Sittard and, and there there's a terrible, uh, just a terrible incident. I remember, I remember how upset Bob Falls was when he told me. Uh, a high-flying German, uh, it says jet bomber, um, uh, they thought it was a jet bomber, uh, dropped its bombs at random uh, and the effects, the effects were just awful. Now Bob Folds was in charge of the recce parties. Uh, he was command post officer of four two five battery. He's getting his position, his guns into position. Now you're going to tell the story of what happened. This is awful. I went in with a recce party and we staked out gun positions for A and B troops on the right hand side of a reverse slope hill on the outskirts of this small town. Then I went back across the road. I told two signallers, Sergeant Miles and Gunner Adam to go down to make a temporary command post in a sort of pavilion the other side of a little park on the left-hand side of the road. They'd no sooner moved off and there was a terrible scream, a German plane diving and it put a stick of bombs across the park. It killed Miles and Adam outright. We went rushing down to see what was left of them. The bomb burst right alongside them and they were both very dead when we got down there. Annan lying on his face and Miles lying on his back. We went for some stretchers. Sorry, we sent for some stretchers. One or two Dutch civilians had turned up by that time. We lifted Annan onto a stretcher. As I helped lift Miles onto a stretcher, he was lying on his back and his face looked undamaged. But when we picked him up, his brains fell out of the back of his head onto the floor. I had the job of wiping off to, uh, whipping off to get a spade and bury this before a gawping crowd of Dutch civilians. I always have it on my conscience that I sent them there to their deaths. 
There's no reason at all why I should, because I was just doing what I had to do. But I was very upset at the time. That's that's a terrible, terrible quote. It's just so graphic. Um, um, he was upset. He was upset when he told us. Uh, now, they're still at Sittard uh, when on 14th of December. What happens on the 14th of December? Why does that date? What what what, what happens around mid-December, Gary? What What happens? <laughs> Well, this is where the Germans launched their, their last gasp offensive in the Ardennes, which is known as the uh, Battle of the Bulge. You've had a bit of a Battle of the Bulge over your life, haven't you? I lost it. <laughs> I'm not sure I've won mine. Anyway, this is Battery Quartermaster Sergeant. They're all getting promoted, aren't they? David Tickle, 425 Battery, and he says this. We gathered there was no way that the Germans were going to win this war, that it was inevitable, just a question of time, how quick or how long. It changed the attitude of both sides. You realised that things were coming to a finish. Therefore, you were a trifle more careful in what you did and where you went. Not nervous. You you kept your eyes and ears open that little bit extra. Whereas the Jerry's realised that this was the end for them and it was a matter of keeping us out of Germany. Well, the, 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 the Ardennes causes a huge redeployment of British artillery, armour and infantry divisions. I know the 5 and 4 fire, or 5D4 fires, as you like to call them, Gary, uh, the 5D4 fires were emergency re-equipped with Shermans and sent down to help stop the Ger- Germans uh, at Dinant. Uh, but eventually, the Americans, with a little bit of British help, helped stem the, the German tide. Now, but what's happening to the South of Tars? What's their heroic role in the Battle of the Bulge, Gary? Well, they stay where they are in Sittard. So nothing? Nothing, no. That's good. They had their own problems. Let's, let, you know, let's, let's not undersell this. So what, what's their problem? Well, on the 20th of December, giant shells begin to fall all around the gun positions. And uh, our good friend, signaller Ronald Paisley of 426 Battery, says, We came under shell fire from heavy guns, 210 millimetre, terrifying speed and burst. One heard the boom of the guns and almost instantaneously an unholy crash and telltale whine of hot, jagged metal. It was dangerous to be above ground at all, and, if on guard, one's position was unenviable. Sea troops suffered with the first onslaught and had a number of casualties, some fatal, in their gun pits. The second night they opened up again, and we had an alarming three hours in the cellar. They fell quite near, but just off the position. They struck earth with the sound of a bomb rather than a shell, and the guns were evidently ranging on our own gun flashes. The tension was such that the commanding officer thought it advisable to move into an alternative position, as not only our own men and equipment, but the civilians looked like suffering, their houses being in direct line of fire. Now, that sounds like, uh, again, Gibson taking a good decision. They move back just a couple of miles to Geelan, and they're there for Christmas. Uh, and and, and they're, they're all right there. The, the Germans didn't pick up their position. Remember, they've lost most of their recce capability by this time, their, their, their aircraft recce, uh, because the, there's complete control of the air for the Allies, uh, except for the odd incident. Uh, now, the war now is just, a, what it, how would you characterise it? It's just an endless mo- progression of movements from gun position, firing bombardments, resuming the advance, drop, you know, and it's cold, it's wet, the mud. Well, the mud's almost as much an enemy as the Germans, although I think the Germans can proudly say that they'll always be more of an enemy than the mud. They're better shots oh, than the mud. Yeah, they are. Uh, then, of course, now the Germans are our comrades in life. But, and, and often, as they, 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 the gunners do appreciate what, 
there's somebody suffering more than the gunners. Who is it, Gary? Who suffers more than the gunners in this war? Well, inevitably, as in most conflicts, it's the uh, poor bloody infantry, Pete. And you've got a quote from Ronald Paisley uh, showing a bit of uh, empathy. The sufferings of the fighting infantrymen are many. He footslogs all the time, does the bulk of the fighting, gets a minimum of food and rest for very little appreciation. And those chaps didn't grumble. <laughs> no. <laughs> but laughingly and cheerfully belted on their kit and took the road. Now, at times there are quotes that just are so, so plainly wrong. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying he's lying. I'm just saying... <laughs> Laughing at you, chaps didn't grumble. What do you think, Gary? I think they grumbled. I think that's putting it mildly. Now, the, the 107th, uh, we'll jump. They, they get to Susteren on 17th of January, 45. Uh, we're into the new year, and there's a bit of a bleak vista stretching out in front of them, isn't there? You're going to be Paisley again. In front of the guns was a no-man's-land outlook. Here and there was the grotesque shape of a disabled tank or gun a ruin of a building or farm, a blighted tree, a wrecked airplane showing black in the half-light against the dirty white background of churned-up snow. The Bosch was retreating slowly. His fire was therefore constant, but not furious. Now, by this time, I think what well, the Germans are beaten, aren't they? Do, do, you, do you agree? Yeah, I think the failure of the Ardennes offensive, it's their last throw of the dice, and, and they know that they're beaten. It's the last nail in the coffin. So Montgomery, he's in command of 21st Army Group, he's determined to attack uh, while the Germans are, are reeling, if you like, after after the Ardennes, because that cost them a lot of tanks, a lot of men. And he, he launches Operation Veritable, uh, the last great battles before the crossing of the Rhine. Um, they, they're, they're not going to give the Germans an armistice, are they? Um, so, so what happens? So, sixth of February, nineteen forty-five, the South Otsars move south, north, north, to gun positions on the west bank of the Meuse, opposite uh, Genap. Genap. Uh, that's fifteen miles south of Nijmegen, and the whole area. What's it? What's it? What do you think it's like? The, the whole area. You've mentioned it before, but I want to hammer it home. Are the South Otsars the only artillery in the area? No, it's bristling with guns. There's some fifteen hundred of various calibre and type all over the place, Pete. Blimey. At five, five o'clock on the, 0500 on 8th of February, the, the, the huge barrage begins. 7.30, the infantry go behind uh, a creeping barrage. Uh, and, and, and then, and then, and then, tragedy strikes. There's a, up above them, there's the, up above the South Nazis, there's a, a badly, uh, badly shot up Allied bomber. And it jettisons its bombs trying to reach, get back to its own lines. And you're going to be, this is a terrible incident. And uh, signaller Ronald Paisley, 46 battery. What, what happens? It was close on midday then, and the advancing drone of aircraft heralded the arrival of the bombers. This sound had grown to a crescendo as they began to pass overhead, when suddenly two terrific explosions uprooted the ground out on the position. A shudder shook the building, and splinters of glass sprayed into the room. We flung ourselves to the floor as another grinding roar struck fear into the very being. What on earth was happening? Were we being shelled or bombed? I heard the skipper yell out as he cautiously peered through the window opening. They've hit E-sub! Pass that to the battery command post. 
Now, the battery command post, uh, Leonard Gibson was at regimental headquarters and, and they, they, he actually heard the explosions. Now, Gibson's a, a can-do officer. He may be a comic personality at times, but he's brave enough. So you're going to be him as well, aren't you? Yep. Major Leonard Gibson, headquarters 107th medium. With 400 rounds per gun and all the charges, that was a bit of a target. So when four bombs landed on four guns, the explosions, what must have happened to the gun teams is beyond belief. I ordered the adjutant to ring up for all the medical aid that could be sent. I ran from RHQ over to this stricken troop and there was a terrible scene of chaos with the gun position officer in charge trying to pull out the wounded and sort out the wounded from the dead. The captain commanding the troop arrived about the same time and he and I, with these explosions going on all the time, helped in that with stretchers coming forwards. Now, that's considerable courage show, showed by all concerned there because there, there are the, these shells going off all around them. It's a terrible blow, so many men from just one troop. Um, uh, but what happens at this stage of the war? Is that is that fatal to the troop or what happens? No, within three days, you've got two new guns and a batch of replacement gunners that have arrived and, and the war's carrying on. You know, it, it goes on and on relentlessly. Now... Uh, by this time, the, the ground on the other side of the Meuse between that and the Rhine's been cleared. Uh, the, the, the South Otisars have fired about 14,000 rounds by this time, uh, about 830 per gun. Uh, it's sheer hard graft, isn't it, Gary? Uh, and the gunners must have been knackered, to use the vernacular. They must have been tired out. Um, but what do you think is their motivation well, aside from, you know, as mentioned earlier, they know that the war's coming to the end. They know they, they can't let the infantry down, that, that they depended for their lives on the uh, on the guns and the, the shells smashing down to crack open the German strong points. First of March, they, they cross into Germany, always a big moment. And uh, one senior warrant officer, this is a great quote. I remember him when he was a gunner, if you know what I mean. This is Battery Sergeant Major Harold Harper, 426 Battery. And it's a wonderful, wonderful quote. And I've seen the like from many, many people in both wars as they enter Germany. Uh, I, 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 uh, I couldn't see a thing except white all over. Not a building anywhere. It was really bitterly cold. Another sergeant major came walking down. I could see him now with his balaclava on and his mittens, wafted his arms to keep him warm. He said, ah, come on, Harold, when do we start the atrocities? <laughs> and, that, and that is the sense of humour. Uh, it, it's great. Uh, they have a bit of a rest then, and then one final effort. They've got to cross the Rhine. The Rhine, is that a big river, Gary? It's a serious obstacle. Now you've really actually seen serious. it. I've been on it, but I was about 11. I don't really remember it. Uh, you, is it how, go on, give us an idea. Is it big? Is it big, Gary? Yeah, it's very big. And, and like all expanses of water, the Germans are, are going to be the other side and defending against the crossing. So uh, it's, a, it's a serious obstacle. It takes some doing. So even though they're outnumbered and, yep. and, pit, and battered and... Uh, it, they're, they're, and they're also they're defending their homeland, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, can things still go wrong? Do you think? I don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can still suffer massive casualties here. You, you, it, this I cannot overemphasize this. It, it's a serious obstacle, and as you rightly say, this is now the heart of Germany. They are going to fight for every inch. 
irrespective of their own situation. And, 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 and we're not going to lose the war now, we. The British aren't going to, the Allies aren't going to lose the war. But serious casualties are serious casualties, and they could be awful. Anyway, the South Otsasars, they're not going to cross in the assault. They're provided a barrage. They move up to the main British concentration area at Zanton. And uh, Leonard, you're allowed to use your uh, your posh your uh, your posh voice here because this is a funny one. Uh, Leonard Gibson, uh, he's got an estate agent's eye for a good property. <laughs> I, get, I, I know where we'll go. <laughs> Lovely sea view, well Rhine view. So he picks out the ideal position for a command observation post, for, so he can watch what's going on. Uh, and he, he seems to have picked too good a position, doesn't he, really? Anyway, you're going to be Leonard Gibson. I look forward to hearing. This is the only accent we're allowed in the whole bloody thing. Uh, I was found a wonderful place on this wooded hillside where the whole operation could be seen from. Eventually the colonel and those who were directing from. If any special direction was wanted, would order it from that point. After we'd been there about half a day, some very senior gunner arrived and said, You seem to have got the spot here. I said, Yes, sir. He said, Well, now, could you possibly move about 30 to 40 yards away? Because I'd like to take this area over. We had some VIPs coming, don't you know? We moved along, and it turned out that that was the point to which they were bringing the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, Field Marshal Allenbrook, and everyone that mattered stood in the very spots that I had previously chosen for myself. It was like he was in the room, Gary. That was brilliant. I'm getting so better the, at that. You are. You are. You are just perfection. So the well, it's the only about the only one in this thing that isn't serious. The, the quotes have been quite. Quite hard, this... this well. Now, the crossing's planned for 23rd of March, 45, and there's a huge barrage from 1800 to 2015. Huh? They're, they're, they're just part... Are they important? Are they, are they a crucial part of the barrage, Gary? Well, they are, but, but they are just part of a concentration of hundreds of medium and heavy guns that fire preliminary heavy counter-battery barrage, because the job is to silence as many of, as possible of the identified German batteries. But they're just, you know, they are important, but they're part of a massed firing. They're a cog in a wheel, an important cog in a, in a, in a sort of wheel. Uh, the, after they dealt with the uh, identified German batteries, uh, they'd switch their fire to the sport of the assault troops. Uh, this is very like uh, the First World War in 1918, isn't it? Uh, by 30th of March, the fighting moves out of their range. It's going well. It's always a good sign when, when the fighting moves out of the range of 5.5-inch gun because they could fire a long way. And then they're, they're ordered to one last uh, task. They're going to support the operations of the 1st Canadian Corps. Uh, they're going to clear the island formed by the River Wild, never heard of it, and the Rhine, close to Arnhem. And they move up and they're soon busy firing, bang, 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 in support of 49th Division as they cleared the island. And then next, uh, 22.40 on 12th of April, there's an assault across the River Isle on Arnhem itself. And Ronald Paisley watches the barrage. Uh, he's a signaler, remember. He's not taking part. He's, he's watching. And you're going to do this one. As dusk was merging into the dark, we let fly with the artillery barrage, and soon the night was shattered by the tornado of sound. Tanks hurled rockets over the river. Thin red streams of fire arched upwards. Heavy and light guns swung in from every direction. Explosions and bursts of fire rocked the town. 
All through the night, the grim carnage went on. Back come 88mm and heavier shells from Bosch positions. Mortars thundered into a nearby copse. The sharp sound of machine gun bullets clipped the air. Thick smoke enveloped the town. The terrifying hiss of the rockets as they swept in made us wince. Jerry would never hold Arnhem under such fire. So the, the, the town's taken. And a, a couple of days later, Paisley gets the chance, doesn't he, Gary, to, 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 see, to see what happened. And this is another uh, terrible description. Signal Ronald Paisley. The town was deserted. Not a soul was visible in the ravaged streets, save an occasional MP diverting traffic. Member of Parliament. Military policeman. Oh. <laughs> Once fashionable hotels and tea gardens scowled shabbily with torn facades. Rubble was in heaps everywhere. Shops pulled asunder and empty. Electric trams in ribbons entangled in coils of wire. Electric lamp standards bowed drunkenly in every direction. The mailed fist had delivered the once obviously lovely town of Arnhem a crushing blow. The mailed fist, Gary. That's that's a good description of what of what these these guns could do. It's to, uh, oh, and the bombers as well. Uh, Germans giving up? What do you think? No, they fight on. Well, amongst the South Otazars, uh, people are beginning to notice that the end of the war is coming. And I, I remember when I was doing the last battle, a book on the nineteen at the end, the last days of the First World War. This always fascinated me: the view of men at the end of the war and how they feel. Uh, this is a Battery Sergeant Major Harold Harper, because the Germans are still killing people. Uh, Four to six battery. He says this: We knew it was in the bag, so to speak. The nerves started to creep in a bit. Uh, then you, you thought, well, having survived six years of war, you get a bit on edge in case anything should happen. And you know what he means. Uh, not just being killed, just being horribly wounded. Uh, they wouldn't have been human if they hadn't, you know, if they didn't have the fact it's going to be peace. Yeah, there, there, <laughs> there was a quote, I think, in one of the uh, earlier podcasts about the bloke who said he would be bloody angry if he got killed at the end of the war. Yes, and that that's, that's it. And this, you're going to be Frank Penlington. Uh, and he was dis- he was going to take good care, wasn't he? Yeah, going to Frank Penlington. There was something in the air. I know it did make me think, well, look after yourself, Frank. Don't go putting yourself in any precarious situations in case you get killed. It made me hang back. I was afraid of getting killed then. I was saying to the lads, we don't want a bloody world get killed in the last minute. Now the war's coming to an end. Now, 24th of April, uh, the, the regiment fire their last uh, last rounds. This is the end for them. After that, they're, they're essentially not in the war. They're moving too fast for medium artillery. And this is Troop Sergeant Major uh, Albert Swinton, 425 Battery, because something happens while they're firing. The, the very last round for each gun of the war. What happens? We got this order to fire a one-round salvo. They all fired, all right, bar one, and he got a premature. The shell burst in the barrel. The barrel peeled back like a banana and one of the chaps got a piece of barrel in his foot. As it turned out, it was the last rounds we fired in the war. But they were very lucky because we've had we've, we've talked about prematures before. They can kill the whole crew. So just a, one bloke having a wounded foot, they've got away lightly. There was no more fighting, but they, they carry on moving forward and eventually they settle into billets, uh, village billets uh, near uh, Coastfield. You might have known Coastfield. It's it's in the British Army area. Uh, no, uh, four two five battery were at Gesher and four three six battery four two six battery. Sorry, at Ramsdorf. 
Uh, and it's here the war ends for the South Otsasars on the 8th of May, uh, Victory in Europe Day. And David Elliott decides... <laughs> David Elliott does seem to have been an idiot at times. Uh, so is that why you chose me to read his bits? He decides the best way to celebrate would be to have a massive bonfire with an effigy of Hitler on to burn on the top. And he puts himself in the most surrealistic danger after the war's finished. And this is the quote from him. Uh, we all drank too much. And at what stage we decided to light the bonfire, I don't know. I was very worried because it had been raining and everything was wet. It was eight to ten feet high and fairly large with this dummy of Hitler on the top. I'd kept a can of petrol to make sure the bonfire went well. I climbed up on top of this bonfire. The men were all surrounding it. And a lot of them had got lighted brands. He means torches. I started pouring this petrol down from the top. A good or 10, feet, 10 or 12 feet up in the air. And then I had this horrible feeling that somebody was going to throw the lighted brand on the fire. And here was I, stupidly pouring a can of petrol. I don't know whether I could make myself heard, but I shouted to the men to, Hold on till I get down. <laughs> I suddenly thought, to get right through to the end of the war, to go and incinerate myself on VA Day. V-E-D. V-E-D-Day. V-E-D. V-E-D. Was the height of stupidity. But I managed to get down. And with a great cheer, they threw the lighted brands on the fire. And it went up with a great whoosh. And everyone was madly cheering. Ah. Do you think drink had been taken? No. No. <laughs> Many of the men had drunk far too much. <laughs> far, far too much. And things got a little out of hand. Uh, they really did. And then Ian Sinclair... Uh, uh, I want to give you his rank because it's important. This is a bit of a reversion to his time as a gunner. But Captain Ian Sinclair, um, sort of uh, the tensions of war get to... uh, um, Some of them start to resurface. And you've got a fabulous last quote for this one. Yeah, emphasising again, Captain Ian Sinclair. Bombardier Monteith, who'd been with us... Bombardier... Right. Yeah, Bombardier Monteith, who'd been with us all the war, a Nottingham high school man. He'd never been anything more than a specialist bombardier, never made sergeant. And he was very resentful because most of his school friends had gone on to commissions. A lot of he, your contemporaries went on to get commissions. They did, yes, they did. <laughs> they started shouting the odds about me in particular, that I was no bloody good, a drunken tongue speaking a sober mind. Everything he said was a nonsense, real venom that had built up, not particularly against me, but against the whole system. I said, come on, Monty, I'm taking you home. I got him into the jeep and he was still being very abusive. And he said, if you weren't an officer, I should hit you. I stopped the jeep, got out and said, good, come on, Monty, forget that I'm an officer, hit me. He did and broke a tooth. So I then roughed him up in no uncertain manner. I really thrashed him. Is there a reason you asked me to read that, Pete? There is, because in your distinguished military career, there was once when you uh, accidentally attacked an officer um, late at night when you'd had something to drink, hadn't you? And what was the result of attacking this fit, young, athletic officer? He beat the hell out of me and I got two weeks in jail, I think. 
Uh, I well, this... got a lot worse, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sinclair carries a near unconscious Monty <laughs> back to his billet and cleaned him up. Uh, Monty, do you think he knew what had happened? Well, I think he did, but um, rather sensibly, I think he uh, maintained a discreet silence. <laughs> well, he had not. He had chipped his t- the officer's tooth. I think. Well, they were both out of order, weren't they? they yeah, you, absolutely. I mean, yeah, both. Are, um, it's it's nice that on this note to say that peace had come to the south. That's us. <laughs> They'd stopped fighting the Germans and started fighting amongst themselves. Now, um, this is the last one of our wartime ones but there's one last episode where we look at the South Lutzazars uh, at the end uh, sort of the before they're demobilised uh, but it's time the book is out Gary what book is that what book is out it's at close range life and death in an artillery regiment 1939 to 45 Pete uh, and we've been talking about this book for a long time because uh, it was delayed because of covid but it it was out on the 7th of january so you can buy it from your local bookseller or from some international non-tax paying capitalist organization like amazon which you uh, may have to do if you're in tier 4 well if you're in tier 4 you're not going to have any choice uh it's uh, it's about uh, 1750 17 18 quid or something uh and it what do you think it's like gary you've read every word what do you think it's like it's a very good book, and if we've, um, you know, if we've intrigued you, if you've come to know and love some of the characters that we've been talking about, um, then you'll really thoroughly enjoy the book. Uh, I'm very proud of it, but most of all, I'm proud that I had the, the pleasure of interviewing these great men because it's their story. Uh, all I do is link it together and put. I expect the wrong, uh, judging by the evacuation book, the occasional wrong, wrong date. date. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These I'm surprised out. it doesn't say nineteen thirty nine to forty four. <laughs> yes, something like that. Ah, oh, well, these things happen at sea, as, as they often say. So rush out and buy that. And uh, thank you to uh, Matt McLaughlin for the opportunity to do these podcasts. I've really loved doing the South Lutzers. I'm almost sorry it's coming to an end, but we are going to announce. Uh, a, a similar series on, on an infantry battalion, uh, but you'll have to wait for a bit before we... Uh, we're going to do that. We're doing the big announcements for next year on our anniversary episode. Yeah, the good news is that we are committed to uh, a, another year of these podcasts. Well, Matt quadrupled our pay. Well, that's, that's not that... odd. Four times nothing is uh, carry the one, uh, nothing. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, it's all we're worth. <laughs> yeah. On that high note... I'm not sure he could. He should have said that quite so explicitly. <laughs> he, he could be. He can be harsh, can't he? Yeah. Well, I think we should come to an end now, Pete. Thanks everybody for listening, and uh, uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?